0: Hey everyone, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about Alien, the 1979 horror classic. As always, this will be very spoiler-heavy. This is a classic. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it beforehand. Mike, what is Alien about?
1: Well, John, Alien is a movie about what happens when three of your favorite things, a cat, Big Pharma, and the guy in the gimp suit from Pulp Fiction, Team up to scare, hunt, and pick off a group of space miners that are somehow more ill-equipped for their job than the team formed in Armageddon. What ensues is a Freudian cat-and-mouse masterpiece of the sci-fi horror genre that will leave you terrified, at times confused, and always at least a little bit aroused, making it fun for the whole family this holiday season.
0: Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life got better the second week
1: i think it's all gonna be better
0: Everybody, welcome to this film could be your life—a movie podcast where uh, two film geeks basically take the films that they love way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined, as always, by Mike Overstreet. Hello. Uh, So this week we are again talking about Alien. I say again because we've recorded this once before, had a few technical issues, but if there's ever a movie that it's, I'm perfectly happy to keep going over. Alien would probably be it. This is a 1979 horror classic directed by Ridley Scott, pitched by him as Jaws in Space. This was the second movie he'd ever made, or sorry, ever directed. Uh, The third movie he directed was Blade Runner, which is quite a one-two punch. We talked about Blade Runner in the very first episode of this podcast. Uh, Two of, I think it's safe to say, two of our favorite movies, right, Mike?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely
0: uh what is speaking of which what is your history with blade or sorry with alien
1: well this franchise is interesting it definitely falls under the franchise or the common theme in my life of i saw this movie uh way too young well really i saw it's (laughs) It's a it's
0: starting to become a recurring theme with you actually
1: yeah 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 my parents were fantastic at this sort of thing You know, Pulp Fiction, Blade Runner, this. I had a rich rich childhood full of lots of uh, texts that were definitely appropriate for my age. Um, But but this is definitely one of them. Uh, Well, really, like I was saying, its sequel is. I saw Aliens before I saw Alien. And I think I saw it first because my dad convinced my mom that it was somehow less violent than Alien, which is a really bad take in hindsight. Like, probably one of the worst takes there is. Um, But...
0: He was he able could to get have this so many other adjectives that would have actually fit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, that's the one that I'm like, no, I, I don't know about that one, chief. Yeah,
1: it was, it was. I mean, you know, he was doing his best. Um, but, yeah. Best. But yeah, he so he convinced my mom to let me see it. I saw it probably, I mean, 11 or 12. I was definitely younger than 13 and it scared the living hell out of me. Uh, So much so that for weeks I went to bed with my blankie over my face because I was afraid of the face hugger uh, coming into my room at night and laying eggs in my chest and killing me. (laughs) Um, It was traumatizing. I actually was joking earlier that I still don't like wearing things like ties around my neck, and this is probably... Uh, where that comes from, if I had to, you know, play armchair psychiatrist, but, um, but yeah, so I remember seeing aliens and being terrified, but that didn't stop me from falling in love with it. I mean, obviously there's something about seeing a movie with your dad that definitely, uh, kind of has a way of making you fall in love with the franchise. But I think what I really fell in love with was all things Xenomorph. Like I loved The way the alien looked. I loved how cool it was. It made it made the coolest action figures. I bought all of them. I mean, I remember getting every single Alien action figure I could. Um and then I came in, I think I saw Alien, the movie we're talking about today, probably at a more appropriate age, probably like 15. And I remember for the longest time, Alien was way lower on my list of Alien movies. Um, Definitely lower than the sequel. It was even probably below things like Predator. Uh, I think that was probably a mix of two things. I associated Aliens with, you know, watching movies with my dad. But I also just, I mean, Aliens is a super cool action movie. And thus, as a young person, that was what drew me to it. And Alien felt kind of slow, honestly. But um, as I grew up, And really, as I got into college, I came back through these movies and my entire hierarchy has like completely flipped since then. I actually think Alien is by far my favorite of the franchise now. And I think that's because at some point I remember having the realization that this isn't an action movie. This is a horror movie. And that small uh, genre flip just changed everything because this is a very slow action film, but an unbelievably brilliant horror movie. In fact, it's probably one of my favorite horror movies ever made, if not my favorite. So uh, I just adore this movie. I think it's a masterpiece of the horror genre.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, I think my story is similar. I I was mentioning earlier, I I think maybe a lot of guys our age first encounter aliens. Uh, There's a lot of reasons for that. For me, I was a huge James Cameron fan for a long time. Uh, yeah. also I don't actually love horror movies usually and so everyone said well the second one is a more of an action movie the first one's really a horror movie uh also a bad take by the way the second one is absolutely <laughs> terrifying it scared the hell out of me but I did love it despite being just despite it terrifying me um so yeah I definitely encountered aliens first I really loved it it took me a while to get to alien I was surprised when I finally watched it that it wasn't in some ways it wasn't the horror movie I expected it to be. I think I was conceiving of more modern horror movies or, or a lot of more kind of gore focused horror movies. Certainly alien can dish out the gore when it wants to, but mostly it's very reserved. It's more Hitchcockian, right? It's, it's more about suspense and an atmospheric dread and, and those kinds of sensations than straight up just, you know, gory, horrifying imagery. Uh, and yeah, I mean, th- same thing, you know, I, I immediately, I just fell in love with it. I really recognize, I think that it does so many clever things to you, the viewer, to make you feel this sense of dread uh, yeah. and, and more stuff that we'll talk about, but it had a huge impact on me. Uh, I, I don't know if I would call it my favorite horror movie. It depends on if you define Jaws as a horror movie, but um, But it is certainly way up there for me. And to be fair, I haven't seen that many of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, But with that, let's get get into it. So we actually separate how we're going to talk about this. We're going to start with why this movie works and then go into why this movie doesn't work. I don't know if we'll have that much to say about why it doesn't work or what holds it back. Uh, And then we have some stray thoughts. And then later on in the episode, we'll have some essays, some monologues to talk about. Uh, But to kick things off, why does this movie work? I have several points I've written down, if you don't mind me going first. Uh take it away. The first the the biggest one I wrote down in all capital letters is the pacing of this movie. Because the pacing of this movie is so so brilliant to me. I don't think yeah, I realized I don't think I remembered until the most recent time I watched it that the iconic, deeply terrifying scene when Kane when the chestburster kills Kane, right? That yeah. happens yeah almost exactly halfway through the movie. It's crazy. Which is really <laughs> gutsy. That means the entire first, basically, hour of the film is this slow buildup, right? No one dies. Yeah. no, You know, things happen, but mostly it's it's just very much building the characters, building the atmosphere, building the tension. And you have to get a full halfway bef- through the movie before that tension starts to explode. And then, of course, you have the second half of the movie where it just... It just becomes this, this terrifying fight for survival. I don't think I remember that at all. And dividing it like that, I think is so brilliant. What do you think about the the pacing of the film? Yeah,
1: no, I think it, it was definitely the thing from this movie that was most misremembered by me, like in my kind of in my recollection of it, even now, I, I thought that it got to the scene with Kane so quickly, right? And yeah. that the Xenomorph is chasing them for most of the film. And I had just, I mean, I had forgotten how long the scene of them exploring the planet was, um, which is very meandering, you know, very much kind of like a slow walk through the universe. But I think what really caught me off guard was that the first half of this film is like, you can almost describe it as an, at this excellent banter around a table buddy movie, you know, yeah. there's just a ton of investment from Ridley Scott in this early, um, accumulation of scenes in which it's just people talking or joking yeah. with each other or just being normal human beings. Um, I mean, there's like the really great moment where Brett, Keeps saying right to everything, you know, yeah. and there's any number of scenes where they're just bickering and messing with each other. And he just spends way more time than I remembered investing in the average Jonas in the um, average conversation of these characters, which is a hugely brilliant thing to do because it has such a high payoff when he starts picking them off one by one. Right. Yeah. So the slow beginning obviously sets up the horror at the end to be more shocking because it kind of lulls you into a sense of um, I don't want to say surrender because you still are on edge a lot. But you certainly don't expect what's coming. It's definitely lulled you to sleep a little bit, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about how that plays into it. But but even more than that, what it does is it makes it so when he starts killing these characters, you care so much more than these honestly the, the depth of the characters gives them any right for you to care about. Right. Yeah. Um, like you shouldn't care when a character like Dallas dies as much as you end up doing because of how much time he invested in him in these small ways over the course of an hour of this movie. So yeah. that, I don't know, that really surprised me on the rewatch. And it's something that I, I also was very impressed by from a, a, a directing standpoint.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I, yeah, it's something I hadn't remembered. Just how much you get attached to the characters—that is super important. Uh, can we talk real quick just about that one scene where Kane gets killed? Because I, I just the the thing I forgot is the whiplash of tone when yeah. it starts out. He's woken up from the coma. He's all happy, he's like, Oh, I feel like I've I've a little head a little hungry or whatever. And they're like, oh man, and suddenly the movie gets brighter in that moment than any other time in its two-hour runtime. Suddenly, yeah. yeah. It's it's almost like a it's like a Christmas movie. They're all just so excited, they're they're joking around, they're eating <laughs> the meal, and then he starts to cough. Yeah. And the way that the tone suddenly becomes just a little ominous. And then very quickly, it gets very, very horrifying. I cannot imagine, because obviously I knew that scene was coming, because it's one of the most famous scenes in film history. I cannot imagine watching that the first time, not knowing what was about to happen. It sounds. I incredible. didn't know
1: when I was a young kid. I didn't, didn't know. I didn't I mean, know that.
0: I absolutely yeah. had already, because I was I in mean, my 20s, it, so I already knew of that scene, you know?
1: No, yeah. I mean, it, it was, <laughs> no, I did not know. And yes, it's terrifying. Can confirm.
0: (laughs) I actually feel way more bad for, for 13 year old Mike or whatever now. Uh, Yeah.
1: I was again, traumatized, deeply traumatized, but um, that actually,
0: sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: But no, that actually really brings into something else that like, I really think works so well in this movie, which is it captures because of how much time it invests in these characters and builds them out. It really does a powerful job of capturing what it would be like to be an average Joe like this in a situation this horrifying, right? And that scene is yeah. a is a perfect example because the movie really over and over again shows these characters in these situations where they're at a total loss of what to do. I mean, it's just like they're totally confused by the insanity of what is currently taking place around them. And I mean... And really the film kind of in the same way that it it starts slow in these other ways builds that confusion slowly too, right? They get to the unknown alien planet, they're obviously really confused about the various things they're discovering and then it slowly starts to build and like there's these slow discoveries of just any number of small details that they have no idea what to do with. Like when they first cut open the facehugger and acid blood comes out and everyone's just like well, I don't know what, what is this? Right. (laughs) And, and what I really noticed this time that was really cool was they have this way where the characters ask questions in that first half of the film that the film is going to answer in brutal ways in its second half. Right. Like you'll have a character kind of pose to the, someone else. Why is it keeping Kane alive while it puts him in a coma? Right. Or why does the face hugger fall off his face and die? Like, what is the purpose of this? And it doesn't provide answers, but everyone's really confused by the bizarre patterns of behavior that make no sense for an average person. And all of that builds to that climactic dinner scene, right? He wakes up, like you were talking about, it's like a a little sliver of joy. It's Christmas morning, like you were saying. And then it just, (laughs) the exploding chest is so (laughs) terrifying. And I actually caught this on this rewatch, but there's that moment where blood comes out the first time and everyone freezes right right it's just like <laughs> no it, it, you actually the actors i don't know if they're acting or what um but it's perfect they all look like they're completely caught off guard by what's going on and it is a little microcosm of how confusing this creature is would make any of us feel in this situation, right? Because it's so alien. But anyways, that was just that confusion that drenches the movie and saturates the movie really stood out to me this time as so well yeah. built into the film.
0: Fun fact. I don't know if you know, they actually uh, did not tell the actors that <laughs> in the one iconic shot where like the thing bursts out of him, that that was no going to be that take. Like they knew that was going to happen, but they didn't know when they were filming that take that that's what was about to happen so the, sh- the look of surprise on their face is actually apparently real. Oh, they were, hey. like, oh we're, just showing su- we're just showing some coverage. Don't worry about it. And then <laughs> shooting uh, some B
1: roll. <laughs> that's <all laughs> you not know, about it. That's like, uh, a, which, you know, that's like, it's not quite Fincher level of like terrorizing the cast and crew for nine months, but it's also kind of messed up. I don't, I don't really know yeah. where to file it under like, how do I get the best performance out of my actors without torturing them?
0: But yeah, I feel like it's a good a, middle ground. It's it's a nice middle ground. It's not to Hitchcock or uh, Kubrick levels like you said, uh, but it's that's notable. That's very fun. I would have liked to have been part of that. Yeah, I think that would have been yes, enjoyable. Yes. Uh, what else do you got in terms of what makes this movie work?
1: Well, I think you probably have a lot to say about this one. Um but I think one of the most powerful elements of this movie is the set design and really the environmental yeah. effects. And I'm going to actually going to tee you up and let you run with that because I know you have a lot to throw at this. But um, I mean, Ridley Scott's a master of this craft. So, and it shines yeah. through.
0: I mean, the thing about Ridley Scott, I remember I was reading one of my favorite film critics, and he said the two things you have to remember when talking about Ridley Scott are that he started as a production designer. And that he wasn't, I think he was 40 when he directed his first film. So he'd been working on films as production designer, but he was 40 when he made his first movie. Uh, and I think that you so see there, here the effects of that in terms of he has a clear vision. He knows how to execute it. And it's so assured. I don't know if there's ever been a second movie in someone's filmography that is so confident in what it's doing. I have to think. Jaws was Spielberg's third movie, I think. Yeah. So that holds. Um so for a second movie, I think this is quite this is something really special. Um but yeah, you know the way that the the look of this film, it is uh this sort of it's hard sci-fi. It's it's sort of reminiscent Star Wars came out 3 years before this, but honestly it feels like it came out 40 years before this this movie. Yeah, sure. Uh <laughs> borrows so much of that used aesthetic that that sort of future but not like slick and shiny and everything works great more like worn and beaten up and kind of cruddy uh but it goes a thousand more miles with it and it uses and i think that the important thing is it uses its set design to further the the goals of the film to further the way that it, you know the way that it increases the dread you're feeling the claustrophobia yeah. The sense of being in space with no nothing around to help you. Uh, that they are trapped in here with this thing. Uh it's not, like I said, it's not this glorious open spaceships with everything wide and pristine. It's it's gritty and it's dark and it's dank and it, you know, the sound is all these pipes running everywhere and these chains clanking. And uh yeah, I I, I could go on and on, but I think that. The way this movie succeeds, it succeeds for a lot of reasons. Uh, It'd be be hard to think of one better than just the the entire production design of it, the way it looks and sounds and feels. And, of course, Scott's a master at that. And even when his movies were way worse, which they definitely got way worse, he was usually still pretty good at that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, I mean, I think I was really struck, and you kind of just hinted at this, I was struck at kind of the dual the dual purpose of the way that he designs the set and really kind of technically builds out this film. Uh, And the dual purpose being that it teaches you about the world as much as it makes you feel what you're supposed to feel about the world. Right. Um, There's the way in which he uses shadow, like you were saying uh, the claustrophobia of it and, and how you're constantly kind of feeling that there's nooks and crannies, that there's something lurking, uh, that nothing feels safe, I guess, is the the overwhelming feeling that this movie always gives me from the way it is shot and really from the way it's designed, right? Yeah. Everything is cramped, everything is dark, everything is foggy, unknown, right? Which really allows it to ramp up the cat and mouse effect kind of to the millionth degree, right? You're constantly afraid that around the next corner or in between the, that shadow over there is actually the beast or the monster, or the alien, right? Yeah. And there's something really yeah. technically proficient in that, which is it, he makes you feel what he wants you to feel just by how the place looks, right? Um, and how it's shot, which is always a sign of a master, kind of in this game. But but yeah. I also like what you what you said, and this is what I was kind of saying with the hinting at, and we had talked about this previously, but it also teaches you so much about the world that these characters find themselves in, or I guess the future um, mm-hmm. without hitting you in the face with it. Right. Yeah. There's the junky, rundown spaceship, which teaches you a lot about the corporate world. They find themselves in <laughs> like they live in a universe in which corporations who do not care about them at all, certainly do not see them as anything more than property. Right. Who will spare pretty much all costs when it comes to human life. They don't really care if you live or die. But then yeah. we'll spare no expense whatsoever. Um, the moment that they come across something that they can monetize or this weapon, right? Yeah. And, one and of the and great, all of,
0: one of the all-time gray horror moments in a movie to me is when she reads uh the screen that says Crew Expendable as its last line. Yeah. And and yeah. you so instantly know, okay, this is that kind of organization. Yeah, again, this is that kind of future.
1: Exactly, yeah. And and that's all built into like the crummy computers they're using. Right. The, the way that everything's breaking, that they're constantly having to hit things to make them work again. Right. Um, Every layer of it is teaching you about the system or the, the future they find themselves in without telling you that that's what's going on. Right. And I even think I was thinking about this in relation to aliens of how, you know, in a really powerful way, he doesn't take the easy out and I'm not trying to belittle James Cameron. I know you love him, but there's like this easy out that we see in aliens, which is that you give a character, all of this information and all of the personality of the evil corporation, right? A swarmy evil little man who is kind of telling you exactly what the plan is and how much they don't care about you and that they're going to sacrifice you. And, literally becomes the personification of the universe in terms of this corporate element. Yeah. And none of that's present in this movie. And yet you still get all of that just from the way that this set piece is designed, from the way that the film plays out from the way that it, that it shows us technology and shows us the willingness of, uh, whoever is paying for this operation to get rid of the cargo in the pursuit of this alien to get rid of the human lives in the pursuit of this alien to basically spare nothing to try to get this alien back to earth. Right. And I, I just think that's a brilliant move. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well, I mean, it's funny because the, I think the movie comes almost close to that character, which is Ash uh, in the scene where, where Ash is, uh, you know, uh, disagree or telling them about, the fact that the corporation wanted to capture this life form and and he's talking in those amazing terms about how much he loves this thing. uh, this terrifying yeah. thing. Um, but th- but even that is telling of what you're talking about, right? That instead of just having it having this side, you know corporation evil character be just this sort of like, oh, well, it's just some guy who's like, ah, we care about money. Instead, it's this android in this weird twist of the movie that, like I said, is like devoted to this thing, like actually loves this thing because he's so. Innate, yeah, because he's so fascinated with it. So it, it it does functionally the same thing, but it's such a more interesting way of doing it um, and yeah. more terrifying for what it's worth. So, yeah, yeah I think yeah, it's, a, it, it's a great way of doing it.
1: It's not like a personal evil,
0: right? It's
1: it's. Yeah. it's the looming idea that there is a corporation that will never meet you that has a spreadsheet that determines what profit margins are. And then you fit into that (laughs) spreadsheet and where you fit in determines if you live or die essentially. And it doesn't care about you. It doesn't think about you. You are just like a number in this far larger set of numbers that it's using to basically calculate its annual year end statement. Right. And yeah. That is that's all built into the vibe of even even Ash as a character. It's all built into like that robotic menace, like depersonalized menace. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, that I think is really smart. I don't know. I think it, it. Yeah, it's a it's a different way to do it. I'm not saying that Cameron is wrong. I just found this to be a more thoughtful approach to kind of capturing yeah. that sentiment.
0: Yeah, that it it. it like you said, it hints at things and then builds them up and, and really lets you figure stuff out. Uh, I think it's brilliant. On that same topic, another thing I'd written down, which I think is kind of related, especially when you get to Ash, when you get to like the dead alien that they find near the beginning of the movie, I think that like Blade Runner, alien represents this intersection of hard sci-fi and, like, for lack of a better word, mythic sci-fi. So mm. the first 30 minutes are very grounded, are very... Uh, believable in a sense in in, in terms of science fiction uh, But then when they find that giant dead alien that was transmitting a message, one of the great horror moments of all time by the way is when uh, she says you know the the machine or mother has analyzed the message and it looks like it's a warning, not a yeah. SOS yeah um and then when they find the eggs that that basically we've established the world in a very grounded way but suddenly, it's opening up all these questions that it's not even going to answer that. It's yeah. just going to let, let it kind of tease your brain and you're sort of sit there like, man, what the hell is that? Or what is this? And you're in that confusion with them. Uh, I just think it's brilliant. And again, it goes back to tone. It goes back to a lot of these things, but, well, uh, and, I, and I do yeah, think way it, yeah.
1: that is a strength in the movie is, you know, I, and I, was another thing I had forgotten, I had forgotten how much lore this movie just hits yeah. at.
0: Right. And yeah. Doesn't it doesn't it, ex? It, there's very low exposition in the movie, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's really cool, and I think it it walks that line really well. And I actually think Aliens does too. Aliens doesn't try to explain away where did the aliens come from, right? What created yeah. them? What's their purpose? It, it the whole desire is for this to be a terrifying, confusing, hellhole, right, of a situation, yeah. and. And some movies would have just stopped there, but this what what really takes this movie to the next level is it maintains that confusion and that mystery and that that just complete unknowing, but then it builds into it really subtle hints at a larger universe, which is what you're talking about, and yeah, and I think that's what takes this to the next level. And I mean, I'm gonna, I'm going to take my dig, you know, it's coming, but thank <laughs> God that Prometheus came along and ruined all of that by explaining hey. all of this stuff to us in the dumbest way possible. But anyway, we'll do a Prometheus pod. Probably never. So got to take my dig right now. (laughs) Yeah, but but the hinting at the lore and the way that they create that intrigue without costing that confusion and that sense of dread uh, is is a strength of this movie that I've forgotten about.
0: Uh, something else we haven't talked about, by the way, and this gets into Alien and Aliens, which we can't step on Aliens too much because I'm sure we'll do that at some point. Uh, another huge reason why this movie works is the, I wrote down, emergence of Ellen Ripley, action hero slash badass. Yeah. Uh, in general, Sigourney Weaver, so it's well known now, but you know she wasn't actually, uh, she was pretty much unknown at this point the character actually also famously was not actually necessarily a female character. None of the characters were, I don't know if you know that Hmm. they were just in the script. They're all just last names. Um, and so, and that was purposeful that they said, so we can cast whoever we want. We're not doing it based on how they look or what gender they are or whatever. We're just going to, you know, cast the best person for the role. And so that's how Sigourney Weaver got, uh, Ripley who became Ellen Ripley after she was cast. um, Obviously, it kind of does the Hitchcock thing, the, the psycho thing, where she doesn't emerge as the protagonist necessarily until over three-quarters of the way through the movie, I would say. Yeah, uh, yeah. The way that the character, you know, there's this shout and fraud of she is right so often in the first part of the movie, and it takes it's not until the end that she's sort of vindicated really, because she, she's the one who keeps being the voice of no, we have to do the right thing. We have to, you know, follow the protocol of of not bringing in a foreign substance into the ship. We have to uh, take action proactively with this, this, and this, and she keeps getting ignored until she's the only one left alive. Um, which is so such a. it's going to come back over and over again with that character. But, uh, yeah, I mean, she's so good in this movie. And and I just love watching her do anything. And the yeah. same thing with Aliens, obviously. I don't know if you have anything else to add with Ellen Ripley other than she's awesome. No, I just, but, I
1: wrote uh, Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver, What a God, with my yeah. note on her. <laughs> um, I do think it is interesting that this movie does not necessarily make her larger than life. You know, she's yeah. far more of a runner and a survivor in this movie. And I actually think it's one of the cool, um, I guess you would say, hard right turns that Cameron builds into the sequel, which is that he says he sees something in this character that I don't know, I think is in this movie, but not really emphasized in this movie. And he sees that, I guess you would say, warrior-ness of her, and then says, yeah. what if we made this character an action god, right? Yeah. And, let's run, let's and I think run that's what, that. yeah, and I think that's what makes it like such, those movies such good mates. It makes them such a good pair. Um, Because in this movie, I mean, her acting is probably even better than the second one. That's probably not fair. That's probably great in both, but she plays a lot more fear. She plays a lot more terror, a lot more into the confusion of the entire film. um, And does so in such a powerful way. I mean, yeah, some of the acting she does in this with her face in this movie is next level bar none for most of the sci-fi genre. Right. Yeah, and and she's a god.
0: Yeah, I think it definitely, I don't know if I would rule on better or worse in this movie versus the next movie. I think the character gets fleshed out a lot more in the second movie, which she has going for her with that. Um, Because in this movie, ultimately, she's sort of like the last girl in the horror movie, right? Yeah. The the trope of of the one moral person who lives to the end. Um, And so so I think it's really impressive how much she does with that. Uh, but yeah, and, and you know, the rest of the crew is good too. Some of them, most of them are pretty forgettable in their own way uh, as actors. I <laughs> how, mean. Dare um, how dare I you? How uh, dare you? How dare I throw John Hurd under the bus like that? Uh, he did the do a Hobbits great job movie. having a chest uh, or a alien burst out of his chest. I believed um, it was
1: bursting out of his chest. So do with it what you will.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, I think we covered my big stuff. Do you have anything else in terms of why the movie works?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just want to... I mean, one, just to throw away and we don't need to sit on, but any movie with evil conniving robots is something that I love. Like, I love Ash. I love Mother. It's just the best. Uh, Space Odyssey stuff is... It's just the best. I'll just leave it at that. Um, Again,
0: interesting coming... uh, Somewhere around 10 years after 2001, I think Mother is a great iteration on that same idea of a... Uh, you know a computer that uh ultimately is supposed to help you but really you can't trust uh, yeah it's good yeah. stuff anyways
1: but yeah i think i think the the main the the two big things i have left i mean we'll start the first one which is i want to spend a little bit more time with two of the really cool horror elements of the movie um i love the way that rit or uh ridley uses the camera angles in this movie, especially the over the shoulder shots. And actually, I guess yeah. we can talk about both these topics with the same scene, which is the scene where Brett dies. Cause the other one is the soundtrack. And I think yeah. the way that he shoots this movie, especially in the horror scenes and the way that the movie has sound applied to it is some of the best technical work of the entire film. And the scene where Brett dies might be the best example. And I'm going to let you talk about the sound stuff in a second, but let me just geek out about the scene, (laughs) the shot, right. Where you, he's chasing the cat. The moment that they separate, which we'll talk about that more later too. But anyway, the moment that they separate, uh, you know, you're starting to feel the tension build in each room. He comes into, you know, he comes in that main one. There's the chains going. It's, Incredibly eerie. The cat's in yeah. there, you know it's running around. And then he sees the cat, he gets down close after he finds the skin, which already red flag. And he yeah. <laughs> cat starts hissing, and it is such a masterful shot. Because at this point, you don't know what the xenomorph looks like fully grown yet. The last time you saw it yeah. was a baby, and over the shoulder. It drops from the ceiling. First bad sign. It can come from the ceiling, right? And it's massive. And the way that it constructs that shot over his shoulder is so much like a oh my god moment, right? And then obviously he turns. You get the first look at its head. The mouth comes out of its mouth, the little mouth, the bigger mouth, whatever. And (laughs) it kills him. And it's just a terrifying scene. But if you notice almost the entirety of that scene is horrifying because of the angles that he takes throughout that room, right? As Brett enters and, and he does that over and over and over again in the, the movie, you know, there's the scene where Ripley is trying to get the alien to sneak up on her and she turns at the last second. It's right next to her head, right? A number of jump scares kind of use that over the shoulder technique too, but he is just a master of it in this movie. And he combines those shots with some of the best sound effects and soundtrack stuff I've seen in a sci-fi movie, which now take it away, John
0: nerd out, do your thing. I'm there for all of that. And yeah, I think, so that scene's a great example. Uh, I I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but uh, there's no music in in that whole scene. Right. And so it's all these other sounds that are uh, kind of, going around you and around the character it's the pipes it's the the water falling down the shaft it's the chains um it's the dripping slicking kind of wetness of everything uh it just evokes so much your brain is just going yeah. crazy because you're hearing all of these horrifying things and it's just filling it out with all the details of whatever monster is in the dark and then of course there is a monster in the dark and there's yeah, actually a lot yeah. of different times in the movie where they do little clever things with sound i actually think one of the more effective ones is when dallas is in the vent and the beeping is telling you how close the thing is to him and it's increasing in intensity and that's and in that case they use the opposite the music is is actually playing there this suspenseful sound to and you're kind of leaning forward and they're all shouting at each other and once the alien gets him there's that sound we'll talk a little bit about maybe the design of it when you see it, but whatever the alien gets him and then it goes to silence and yeah, there's nothing. Yeah. The music stops. The beeping stops. They start talking cause they're terrified, but notice how it's flipped from before, before it's silence and then suddenly noise and then suddenly silence. And this one is noise, 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 silence. And yeah. he does different oh, cool. ways of using, yeah. The different ways that he uses sound to ultimately do the same thing, make you terrified. But by switching it up, right, it keeps you invested and it keeps you, uh, yeah, just just in you know terrified the whole time. Yeah, so we've somehow gone this far without actually saying the name H.R. Geiger or talking about the alien design. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not a good is, look. <laughs> which is really bad because it is singularly the most iconic thing about this movie. Prob- probably, in in my in our defense, I think my reaction to it is like it's so embedded in popular culture that i almost think there's not much to say about it it is so otherworldly so primally terrifying it's this thing you can't reason with yeah it's such it, yeah it's just a perfect design I, I don't know what do you have
1: yeah no i mean in, i'm going to talk about this in my monologue but it's truly a perfect example of like otherness of being not human right um, yeah. And I mean, each step along its evolution, like the face hugger, which in its own right is a heck of a design where it has like the lung sacs on the side, on its outside, the snake tail tightening around its throat, like the whole thing is just freaky. I've already talked about how much it traumatized me. But then there's like the actual full grown hunter. And we like you said, it's it's iconic, iconic, right? Yeah. And the way that they introduce it really feeds into that confusion theme by by its design it builds into how confused you as the audience and the characters in the film are supposed to feel about this entire encounter right it's a baby and then you find the shed skin a few hours later and then you see the size of it like we were just talking about and it's massive and then for the rest of the movie every part of how it's like designed to exist allows it to immediately adapt and then use whatever environment it finds itself in, right? Whether that's the defense mechanism or if it's acid blood, whether it's the fact that it's basically designed to always be cloaked or to fit into small spaces or everything it does is shocking. And it's designed to do that way or to be that way. And there's that great, you know, line from the movie from Ash, which is you still don't understand what you're dealing with. Do you perfect organism? It's structural perfection is only matched by its hostility. And yeah. and yeah. in that way, what I love about its design is that and it is what you were kind of just talking about with it's the fact that it's unstoppable or uncontrollable or unreasonable is in this really cool way. It kind of fits the mold of the death character, you know, that appears so often in cinema. Uh, I mean, for our generation, the Coen brothers do it the most. Um, just this character that is the epitome or the the symbol of death coming for us all. In that it is, you can't reason with it. You can't stop it. It can't be controlled. It will eventually overtake you, right? And as I'll dive into a little bit with the monologue too, the way that the movie puts normal people in front of that kind of a designed creature is what makes it so horrifying. Because it really invites us to think about what if you encountered a species that was designed to be this confrontational, this deadly, this outside of yourself, imagine and let your imagination go crazy. Right. Um, and and all of that is baked in looks and yeah, go on, go on.
0: And building on all of that, like, I think the fact that you can't even reason what it's doing, in other words, like that it's, it's hostility doesn't even have a purpose to it other than that. Seemingly, it just wants to kill things around it. I think one of the most effective scenes in the movie and getting back to the, how it slowly doles out information When the alien or when Ripley finds Lambert and Parker's bodies uh, and they're still there, they've been brutally murdered, but they're still there. And I somehow in my head up to that point, I assumed and I think the movie knows I had assumed that it was eating the bodies or somehow doing something (laughs) with them. And it's actually so much more terrifying when she finds it and you all realize collectively, oh, my God, it's just killing them. Like that's yeah. how unknowable this thing is. Like we even expect a certain level of, well, if it's an animal it kills to eat or it kills to to do something, but it's just killing them. There's no yeah. reason to it. There's no logic to it. Uh well, it's and, so and good they, and it's such a good it, part of the design. Go ahead.
1: It builds that even at the beginning where it does grow that quickly so you know that its metabolism doesn't require food or protein. Whatever it eats isn't from Killing large things, right? Because it grows from being a baby to the full size monster without having done any of that. And you don't catch that when it kills Brett, right? You're like, Oh, he's a big boy. Now he must be hungry. Kind of like what you're saying. He must be doing this to feed. And you're right. The moment that it flips on, Oh no, it's just something that kills for the sake of killing. Suddenly you're like, what is this thing right yeah and yeah and that's before you even get into the fact like i said it has a mouth instead of a mouth which is also pretty not normal but so every part of its design gives it a psyche and a look that is just terrifyingly alien
0: and uh, i love it yeah cool uh do you have anything else or can we get into why this movie what maybe holds this movie back let's say yeah i think we can dive in so, I I wrote down quote unquote still some seventies filmmaking moments. Particularly, there's a couple of zoom-ins that are a little tough. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that just mark it as a product of the seventies. It's strange though because Blade Runner is just two years later, and I don't think has pretty much anything like that. Maybe some of the effects sort of date it. Uh, but there's just a yeah, there's just a couple filmmaking moments that that I'm like hmm, that's a little. That's a little old school in a way that maybe hasn't aged the best. Um, I don't know. What do you got?
1: Well, in the very similar vein of 70s, 80s, things that don't age well, uh, the we have to put the leading woman in their underwear for no reason scene. Yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah, really. You're just like, what? What? Why? What's happening? I mean, it's just it's just unnecessary uh, exploitation kind of stuff. But yeah. Uh, did, the closest well it comes for
0: to like a 70s B movie I would say yeah yeah how about you next uh let me see most of the effects of the movie are great but we it's time we talk a little bit about maybe the part of the alien design that that didn't hold up uh, I remember Ugh. you had some tough comments last time about uh the scene when Dallas is in the vent we were talking about it a second ago because it's <sighs> pretty terrifying Uh, or I should say the build up is terrifying but there's this moment when the alien actually comes upon him and it throws open its hands and it's a split second shot and then cuts away and it should be a great terrifying shot but it's hard to overlook the fact that at that moment it does look like a dude in a suit trying to give him a hug I'm just gonna say yeah
1: it does that's what it it, it does yeah that's the
0: overall effect it has on me the viewers I'm like oh that was a guy in a suit okay I know (laughs)
1: when it's it's funny because it's like it goes back to why that with the scene where brett gets killed is so good is you don't ever see a guy in a suit uh it's clearly just a set piece it's or i don't know if it's an animatronic or what but it's not a person in a rubber suit and yeah there are two scenes in which they actually have to show someone moving as the alien i guess three um The scene with Dallas where it does absolutely. If you guys are listening to this podcast, stop it. Go watch the movie and pause on that scene. It looks like (laughs) he's about to give Dallas a hug.
0: Yeah. And it's it's incredible.
1: It's incredible. And same thing later. uh, There's a scene where the xenomorph is moving to kill Lambert and Parker. And in that scene also combines this with like this weird slow-mo motion effect where it's like gliding and there's a very mystical song playing in the background And again, its hands are like kind of spread open and it looks like it's walking to give them a hug again. And um, (laughs) it's just it's it's are we sure that the monster isn't hugging people to death like that? That's not what's happening here. Uh, And then I'd be remiss to not talk about the scene with it uh, flopping at the outside of the spaceship. After Ripley kicks it that's, outside,
0: that's the one that that sticks the hardest in my brain in a bad way. Yeah, um, yeah, that that's when it just goes full on. Okay, this is a dude in a suit. This is yeah. This is a a seventies <laughs> yeah. you know uh, movie, and that's a guy in a suit flopping around. It's a great monster design, but and, and that's also for what it's worth. Where Aliens, I think, most surpasses it. Uh, not because it isn't guys in suits, it, it still is, but they get around that by, I think, the way that Cameron shoots the movie, the fact that he makes them faster and more of them and more terrifying in that sense. Um, that's where I think Aliens kind of comes into its own in a good way. Well, uh, and,
1: and it's also yeah. kind of like Aliens overloads you with a ton of them,
0: right? Yeah. And yeah.
1: what's hard with this is you're, you don't see the alien very often at all, and... And it's very disappointing that when you finally do, it's like, dude in a rubber suit <laughs> trying to hand out hugs. I mean, it's just, it's just like <laughs> the reveal, and you're like, uh, oh, oh, okay, <laughs> like, oh, cool. that's a, that's the dude from like, Pulp oh. Fiction, okay? Yeah, <laughs> you're like,
0: okay, I, yeah, sure. Good <laughs> hey, one the Gibbs here, Mr. Scott.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, and it, oh, it's well, funny because well, it's, it's another, it's another connection to Jaws, right? Where yeah uh, the best thing that ever happened to jaws is when you know the giant rubber shark broke down so you don't see the shark for most of the movie and yeah. the terror is wondering what it must look like oh it must be so massive it must be such a monster right and then the scene where the shark gets on the boat it you're like that's just a big rubber shark head and that's yeah. not that that's that just not that scary so incredibly right? fake yeah um, and I think that's just a 70s thing, maybe filed out under 70s, 80s, too, where it just doesn't they don't have the technology to really deliver on that creature in the way that he yeah. probably would have wanted.
0: Right. And again, so, there's something brilliant about that, because tr- in the effort of working around it is is where they make it so effective. Uh, but yeah, at some point they have to stop working around it. And when they do that is when maybe it's aged a little bit. Um, The only other thing I wrote in terms of what maybe holds the movie back, and I I would be open to being debated on this. I wrote, depending on your cynicism, the stupidity, laziness, fearfulness, and childlike attitudes of everyone besides Ripley may be considered unrealistic. Uh, I think we'll actually talk about this a little bit later, so I don't know if we want to go too much into it. But I did have many moments of frustration in terms of like, oh my god, how are you acting? How are you so stupid as to do this? Um, yeah. So you know, I, I don't know. We'll talk about that more later with the monologues. Well, but
1: no, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm going to. Def- we're both actually going to defend the characters later, which is the funny part. <laughs> but I do want to spend a second just laying into these idiots because I did wrote. <laughs> I mean, I wrote the same thing. I was like the characters' choices yeah. in all caps. Um, and I mean, it's hard because on one hand we are going to defend these characters later, like I just said. And on the other hand, it's also common to the horror trope. Like these are very common horror tropes that are driving some of the character decisions. So you're like, I get it from that perspective. On the other hand, when the guy falls into the mystical egg pit and the egg starts coming alive and he just decides to hang out and see what happens. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure that's a smart decision. Or when they completely ignore Ripley, when she totally in and in a totally reasonable way objects to bringing the dude with the alien stuck to his face back on board the ship. And everyone's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Why do you want Kane
0: to die? And it's like, are you sure? Are you sure?
1: And then, I mean, obviously splitting up like any time character split up. What the heck are you doing? Um, yeah. It, you, you killed Brett. I mean, that's literally yeah. on them. I don't know what else to say about that. And then, <sighs> sweet Lambert. Sweet, sweet Lambert. Sweet Lambert. Has anyone in a film responded worse to a crisis situation? Like, ever?
0: It's it's tough, yeah. It, it's hard to think of sitting there and screaming. I mean, to be honest, it is... Deeply terrifying, so I, in a sense, it works for the movie. But it's hard to overlook that it's like, wow, that is the worst possible reaction you could have, huh? Standing there, yeah. and screaming, and not doing anything, and letting uh, Parker
1: get killed, like just basically yeah. getting everyone killed. It's like, oh, cool. In a cool, sense, cool, cool.
0: you also want to say, like, hey, Parker, what the hell? Like, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it, but at the, I get it, I guess. But also, it's like, so you realize though, if you don't shoot, you're both gonna die. So well, like maybe when he there runs was a at it, that's the best. Just like when he does what? When he runs at it, he's like, "I'm yeah. gonna tackle it." You're like, "Okay, good luck." And you're like, "That that was the play, huh? That was that's what we went for." Okay, you had
1: all that time to figure out what you were gonna do, and that's where you landed. Good I stuff, know, Parker.
0: I'll run. I'm at just it. gonna die. We're this actually pretty close now. Me, we're actually pretty close now to straight thoughts. Did you have anything else substantive yeah. for what holds the movie yeah. back or
1: I, I have one more and it's kind yeah. of like a two parter. Uh it's the actual ending of this movie and then the original intended ending of this movie. Um which one do you want which, to hear first?
0: So, uh so go ahead and do the intended ending because I think it's yeah, it's they're both notable and it's hard to yeah. decide
1: Yeah. So this this was something I read about when I was watching this movie on my Amazon Prime account and it had just trivia popping up. Yeah. So it's obviously 100 percent accurate. Do not question it or look it up. Um, But apparently, according to Amazon Prime's trivia, the ending that originally was desired by Scott and was eventually vetoed because it was too dark is that. Ripley shoots it or gets it out the airlock. I don't know if she shoots it or if she gets it out another way. And essentially it crawls back through the airlock. She shoots it either again with the harpoon or for the first time with the harpoon. It ignores it and basically pulls itself up to her, rips her head off and then shuts the airlock, sits down at the chair and then records a message to earth with Dallas's voice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what it's now, it's hard to say though. Part of me doesn't hate that. I'm just going to be honest. Part of (laughs) me is like, I, I I actually, I've, I'm always a sucker for sad endings. I always like just when (laughs) it's like, especially when it's a horror movie, when it's a horror movie and it just doubles down on, I'm not going to, everything's bad and it's not going to get better. Um, I think that among other things, we lose sequels with Ripley. So that's a huge negative. Uh, we also, it also makes the alien too not alien, right? Mm. It th- like, there's something in that that's like, Oh, I get what it's doing. And I like how in the current version of the movie, in the final version, you never know what it's, what it's intentions yeah. are or what it's doing. Yeah. It's always mysterious. It's always, if you will, alien, and so uh and so I don't like that it robs you of that a little bit that um that ending sort of maybe keys you in a little bit also it would have been corny as hell I guess that's yeah something I think to it's note.
1: it's just ridiculous it's like jumping the shark in the worst way but
0: um, yeah
1: that was my first gut reaction to it where I was like that's just cheesy it's it's just silly I mean it's just like I'm trying to imagine the alien who has been lurking and crawling and slimy and disgusting, just, like, pulling up to the desk and, like, sitting down, getting comfortable, and then just being like, <laughs> getting Getting a cup of coffee Earth. or something.
0: <laughs> like, it's, I just can't. I can't imagine it. it sounds like a Family Guy sketch, actually.
1: It does. I think it probably, maybe that's where they got the trivia from. I don't know.
0: Maybe, yeah, yeah, who knows. Uh, but yeah. anyway. So that, that's tough. I, also, I, I do prefer the ending they went with marginally yeah. I think it also has a few issues but uh. yeah
1: so I also have a bone to pick with that which is that apart from like the first jump scare when it like I said when it, it moves up behind her or no sorry when, when she's thinks she's safe and then you think it's like a piece of paneling in the ship and then it moves for the first time which oh my gosh I forgot about that and I yeah. jumped out of my seat Sca- um, yeah. apart from that everything that follows is like what the hell is the alien doing? Right? So, yeah. like, what is the alien doing for the first half of the scene when she's slowly going backwards, <laughs> getting into the suit? Just, it just, like, keeps just chilling. hanging out in that crack. Yeah. Just chilling. Yeah. Putting its little baby mouth in and out, just, like, watching yeah. her get ready to kill it. And, and then also, like, the death sequence doesn't do much for me. Part of that's the rubber suit. Part of it is just the whole scene feels a little bit like a letdown. But... I don't know what else you could have done, so no. I I don't really have much to say. It's just the in the actual ending also doesn't particularly move me a whole
0: lot. Sure, and it's and it's it's the kind of thing where it's like it kind of reminds me of Jaws in terms of I don't know how to end a movie like that. Yeah, sure. Uh, part of it I think is just like oh well you just gotta you know. You just got it. Just has to come to a stop, and at some point, it's just gonna be characters looking at each other and being like, "Yep, that's the end." Um, we did it. We did it, and so I, I forgive it in those terms, but I, I agree. I think there's it's it's probably the weakest part of the movie, in in terms yeah. of it's the least effective. Uh, do you want to go into stray thoughts now? Yeah, let's do it.
1: This is my favorite we'll part just, of the podcast. We'll just
0: <laughs> we'll just trade back and forth. I have at least okay. one. New, so we did already do this podcast, like we said. Uh, I do have some new stuff, though. I have at least one okay. new thing. Cool. Uh, but the first thing you've already heard, Why or was the cat also in hibernation at the beginning of the movie? They don't address <laughs> this. this. They don't show it in any way. Uh, but it bugs me. Because I'm like, the. so either the cat is cozying up with someone in hibernation, which is weird, and they don't show it. Or... The cat's just running around the ship by itself for like eight months. That's wild. That doesn't make any sense. I just want to know. Eating, Anyways. eating space
1: noodles? Yeah. Doing who knows what?
0: Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Okay, go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, I, I think that's, well, I don't know. That <laughs> That's one of those points that I never think about, and it's great. It's just great. Yeah. It makes me laugh every time. Like, are they shaving 18 months off this cat's life just by making it live outside of cryosleep? (laughs) Like, I don't know. It's weird. They're bad cat owners. Okay. My first one is uh, simply this. There's a lot of cigarette smoking in space. Never didn't think I would uh, see a future in which in a intensely, you know, oxygen rich atmosphere in a cramped spaceship in the middle of our galaxy, people are just chain smoking in public spaces
0: yeah it's a little little bit weird maybe, uh, maybe also left over the 70s you do it does go straight into one of my biggest ones these are just pet peeves of mine um, first one is there's sound in space when they kind of are outside the crafts and when Ripley kills the thing there's sound there is no sound in space there's nothing for tra- sound to travel through it's a pet peeve of mine second one I'm just going to blast off because it's very related there's gravity and they never explain why and that always bugs me too <laughs> <laughs> and in the big ship, you can maybe like imagine that they have some sort of artificial gravity thing. It makes no sense in the small ship. Yeah, it, sure. sure. It, there's no way for there to be gravity. Uh, what you got? Um, never say
1: we've gone too far to turn back now. Whenever someone <laughs> says maybe you should turn back now as you're going towards a terrifying alien spaceship on a dead,
0: deserted planet. Yeah, it's like hey, maybe life should... advice
1: with Mike Overstreet.
0: If someone ever, if you ever find yourself about to say we've gone too back to turn around, just turn around at that moment. Yeah. Just oh no, you know what? We're in a horror movie. Speaking They'll of which, how guy. did my next one is how did they get John Hurt back to the spaceship after he had been face hugged? He <laughs> he repelled down into that pit, and he has and he's unconscious. Bodies are heavy, and they just kind of cut to them at the spaceship. It bugs me, anyways.
1: Yeah. Uh, this is another one that bugs me. Would Ripley really not object to being told, eh, don't worry about it when she figures <laughs> out that the message to the ship was a warning, not an SOS call? Yeah, like, that's, she that's a little tough. Ash is just like, it's fine. And she's like, oh, OK. <laughs>
0: She's like, like oh, okay. what? Yeah. Like, I just are you wanted sure? To, I, like, I just wanted to mention that. I don't know if, if anyone cares, but whatever. And then they oh, get back good. with,
1: like, a mysterious alien on the dude's face, and she still is just like... I mean, she does object then, but at the same time, you're just like, what What? what are we... Why are we not connecting dots yet? Like, what's what's going
0: on? I would say remarkably cavalier about that kind of information. Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of thing... That I would take very, <laughs> very, very seriously. Um When it
1: it is funny because
0: I love I love
1: when people in comedy say don't worry about it to like things that clearly need to be worried about
0: where you know, yeah. it's like is that it's the is my Yeah, you can call it the funniest part of the movie. Yeah. Don't worry about it. And people are like, eh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's fine. Uh my next thing, you also you kinda hinted at this and maybe it's a positive because it makes the alien more alien. But I just take in terms of like the laws of thermodynamics, I take issue with the thing growing that fast with apparently yeah, sure. no source of no source of fuel. Um, it just I'm just like, wait, that's not how biology works. Where does it get, the, it where does it get the energy to do that? It, <laughs> it eats, eats dark
1: chains. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's I it. I don't All know. All the energy like, and chains. I got nothing. I got nothing. It's a perfect <laughs> organism. Okay. Anyways, what you got? Other
1: than it eats metal. <laughs> yeah gets nutrition from it. But this is more of a question. Um if you found a space egg that started coming alive the moment you came into contact with it, uh right after you found an alien with its chest exploded out from the inside, would you hang out and see what happened? Uh
0: I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say no. I don't, you know, I, I guess I don't sure? know for sure. Uh it's it, it was a wild decision though, where he's like, Oh, this is interesting. Let me just yeah, at, let me get closer. This is so cool. Let me, oh, let me get a little closer this. to this. <laughs> don't mind that's if a, I do. A, that's a weird take. Um, wouldn't be my first response. I don't think. Uh, no. Okay. All respect to Kane. Yeah. Uh, well, well, this is pretty much my last one. Uh, it's really just a note. There's a pretty well known theory that Ripley survives because she is the kind of the smartest person in the film like it's a slasher fic- flick uh part of that theory too or at least maybe it's kind of a slightly different theory i read points out how every character in some way uh manifests a stereotype about motherhood um yeah. where they're too kind or they're too uh forgiving or they want to save someone too bad and all those different things ripley is the only one who never does and that's why she gets to live <laughs> uh, the same theory. It actually comes from a fan theory about predator. That's the reverse where every character in predator represents some sort of stereotype about macho manliness and therefore dies except for, I forget the, the Schwarzenegger's character in predator, but he alone um, sort of doesn't do that and is rewarded by being able to kill the thing. I don't know. It's just an interesting uh, way of looking at it. I, I like uh, the take that
1: Weaver lives because she just doesn't give any Fs.
0: Yeah, I. That, I think that's the except best part. For about about the, it. Anyways, for about I just wanted to note it. Cat. It's if you search for it online, it's actually a really interesting read. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I will. That, that's well, I all I got. One what last got?
1: one this is kind of another pet peeve, and this is like more about the movie's logic, you know, within its own universe. And that is, shouldn't the movie have ended with Weaver dying in space because she shoots the alien in the chest with a harpoon, and no doubt its acid blood would have gotten all over the airlock in her ship? Because it then also splashes around and flops on it in its weird rubber suit. So,
0: frankly, it, you know, I like, could. the
1: eternal yeah, logic? I, I mean, at the very least, wouldn't it have sprayed as it left the airlock?
0: Or, you know. Frankly, the acid blood is not is a concept which is introduced and then not dealt with nearly enough after that aliens the sequel does a lot more with the acid blood being a problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you're totally right. I don't get like, they're kind of like, Oh, wow. That's really, really bad. Okay. And that just doesn't come up again when it really should (laughs) at least a few times. Uh, is that it? Did we get it? That's it. Okay. Uh, All right, stick around in just a second. We're going to head into our little essays that we have both prepared. Hey guys, welcome to the next part of the podcast. Uh, In this part, we kind of call it talking points or monologues or essays. Basically, Mike and I have just each prepared our own uh, little essay, talking or going more in depth into some part about Uh, Alien and something about the repercussions of it and maybe, you know, analyzing something on a deeper level. Uh, Mike, I think you're going first this week, right? I am. All right, well, whenever you're ready, go for it. We aren't
1: afraid of the dark because we think it might be empty. We are afraid of the dark because we are afraid it might not be. I have no idea where that quote comes from, and I'm ashamed to say that I have uh, no, I guess, willpower to look it up. But I've always loved it. An Alien is a movie about that statement being absolutely true. It's about what happens when the dark, empty, unknown spaces of our universe prove not to be as empty as we hoped. That in fact, they are full of the worst possible thing we could ever imagine. The Alien, a creature of absolute terror and carnage, unstoppable in its rampage and uncaring in its brutality. One of my favorite creatures ever shot on film, the xenomorph. It is truly a great monster of cinema history, and one I've always been fascinated by. And I do mean always. Like I said earlier, I have loved The Alien since I was a kid. I saw this movie way too young, again, like I said earlier. It's a theme from my childhood. And I spent my youth in essentially a childhood equivalent of a million dollars collecting every action figure I could find of this alien and everything related to it. I mean, I had them all. And it's hard to really nail down exactly why. The Xenomorph just had this unique ability to both terrify and excite me. But more than anything, I think it's because the alien is truly perfect in its otherness, in its total inhumanity. Every part of it is designed to be totally unrelatable to us as human beings, and thus to make our humanity feel so uneasy. Sometimes it does this by just being gross. For example, the face hunger, which, oh my gosh, what a design. It has the lung sacs on the side, the snake-like tail tightening on the throat of Cain, or the juices that seem to flood out of the creature's mouth when it becomes an adult. I mean, yuck. Other times, it's the Xenomorph's monstrous, unexplainable qualities most notable in each characteristic of the fully grown hunter. The way it looks is obviously iconic, but it's also wildly unsettling and radiating this sense of danger in how it appears and exists simply as a biological entity. It has a head and arms and legs, but the proportions are all wrong. The head is elongated, the fingers are these slender, almost claw-like digits. It has no clear eyes or ears or vehicles for emotion. It's just a blank slate of death. And when wounded, like we are, it doesn't gush out its life force. It actually just gushes out more death in the famous acid blood. And then there, of course, is what we already talked about, its growth. The speed at which it becomes an adult and seems to grow without actually consuming anything. It's why the scene when it gets Brett is so startling because you had no idea something could grow that quickly into something so monstrous. I mean, every part of this creature is so other than us. And I didn't even get to the fact that it has a mouth inside of a mouth, which, you know, not the most human thing. Even more, though, I think what makes it so different, so other, so terrifying is its psychology. Nothing about the way this thing thinks, or acts, or behaves, or processes the world is human. It is meant to be as separate and impossible for us to understand as possible. It has no clear motives, no clear desires, no clear goals. There is no way to impact it, change its mind, interrupt its internal narrative, if it even has one, or slow the instinctive tape that it's running at all times. It simply lives, hunts, destroys, kills. It leads to what I believe is the best scene and line of the movie. And we're just going to run that clip real quick. There's got to be a
0: way of killing it. How, how do we do it?
1: You can't. That's bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you?
0: Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched
1: only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. A survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. But I'm. I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to
0: pull the plug. Last room. What? I can't lie to you about your chances, but
1: you have my sympathies. That scene gives me chills every single time. But it also captures what the Xenomorph embodies every part of its design is meant to be totally alien to us and thus totally unpredictable to us. And I think that makes our brains go absolutely haywire. We as human beings have this ability to form, retain, and process memories, memories that we use to create categories for people, places, things, events. And from those categories, what we do, what our brains just naturally do, is they try to develop predictions for the future. They take our past, stimuli that produced responses, causes and effects, things that led to one thing and then the other, we take these, we apply them to the present, especially in areas of potential danger, and then we rely on them to try to predict what might come next, predict those potential futures, to see threats before they come, to prevent repeated wounds, to keep ourselves safe by being one step ahead. We are just wired to develop predictive minds that can run predictive models, those what-if scenarios we run ceaselessly to try and protect ourselves, and we rely on those at the core of our being. They bring us so much comfort. And this alien, this monster, is so unnerving to us because it is by intentional design created to blow that up completely. It refuses to live in the boxes that our experiences and predictive minds create for it, which is bad enough. The movie also does something really smart with that, something chilling. Over and over again, it takes this enigma, this bucket of unpredictable chaos, and then throws normal people in its path as the central vehicle for how it creates the film's moments of terror. The horror scenes of this movie are actually pretty simple. They just show episodes where, through normal people, that part of our human brain just gets exposed as impotent over and over and over and over again. Kane going to explore the egg, never imagining that it could launch out a fully grown life form that grabs him and takes hold of him so quickly. The acid blood seeping through their ship, coming to realize that they can't actually do anything to fight back against it without killing themselves. The scene around the dinner table when it bursts from Kane's chest and they all freeze, like we discussed. Brett, turning around to see that in a matter of hours it has grown to a size bigger than himself, Dallas and the vents, realizing that it's not only huge, but fast, quiet, stealthy, clever, impossible to trap like a normal animal, and totally adapted to its environment already. Even Ripley, over and over, realizes that all she can do is run and pray and hope that it doesn't reveal another aspect of itself that she never could have predicted, that will bring any plans she might have come up with to naught. Every. Natural, predictive response we can imagine. Study to understand, stand to fight, run to survive. Each time the prediction proves futile, the pr- predictive mind fails and proves incapable of succeeding in the most urgent moments. It's like watching ourselves try to run the best simulations we could come up with. Perfect models and predictions, only to watch them utterly fail us over over again. Which makes this movie so fascinating for us as viewers. First, if you're like me, you find yourself repeatedly judging the character's choices. Why would you go in there? How could you freeze up like this? Maybe don't go in the air vent, dummy. But then, if you're actually willing to reflect on the total alienness of this creature and the insanity of how it operates, if you're willing to be self-honest, Well, you begin to realize how arrogant and absurd those thoughts are. Because if you're willing to do that, it's pretty easy to reach one conclusion that in their shoes, we would have done the exact same stupid things. We would have approached it through the lens of our own experiences, creating our own predictions and plans. And then in the face of this alien, we too would have watched our brains go haywire, our plans fail, and that little mouth inside of a mouth busts our face wide open. And in doing that, Alien does some, something that few films can First, it terrifies us in a unique way. It creates terror simply by reminding us that when faced with something of this design, something this impossible to define or to predict, something that is defined by change and constant evolution and completely unstoppable, perfectly designed to do one thing perfectly, to be unpredictable from our human point of view. Well, it reminds us that with that sort of design, the thing we rely on the most to navigate our world would mean nothing. And that we would be helpless and that is freaking terrifying but second it's also in a weird way exciting there is something thrilling about having that part of our human monkey brain turned upside down to have a movie prove to us that this part of our humanity can not only be wrong but can be left totally and completely useless It's exciting in its absolute mystery, in its danger, and how it humbles us when we're willing to enter into it. It reminds us that, as is often the case, most of our world is actually quite unpredictable, unstoppable, unexpected if we are just honest with ourselves. And it's exciting because it reminds us that through this part of our mind, we find that it might be a great tool for many things, but it's actually a pretty terrible master in our universe and can be a pretty weak God as well. And being reminded of that invites us to live in a space of accepting the unexpected and responding to reality as it is. A space that though true is nothing if not terrifying and exciting, horrifying and thrilling human and alien.
0: dramatic pause bilbo was really terrifying in that scene yeah he
1: was oh my gosh i mean he he was struggling he was uh yeah his head was kind of knocked off but you know the ring probably can i don't know do something
0: about that probably, probably kept him there yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, what you need to do put that joke in the hopper a couple more minutes i think when it comes out it's going to be fully formed
1: so, John, normally at this point, I would ask you a question, but in your prideful, arrogant way, you basically already uh, sent me your question for me to write for you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. One of the things that I've really enjoyed about, you know, the side conversations we've had about this movie is that you have a very unique perspective or a very interesting perspective on how this movie captures the otherness of the xenomorph in a really cool way. So I'm just going to hand that to you and you want to dive into that a little bit, maybe that could be a response.
0: I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it does connect a lot with what you're saying. Um, You know, the first thing is actually something that I'm just wholesale stealing from another source that I cannot remember at this time. Uh, But I remember at some point I was reading someone, you know, we've already mentioned there's a few similarities between this movie and uh, Jaws, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, came out. Uh, four years before this movie, and of course, this was very famously pitched as Jaws in Space. I think that there's this interesting... It's interesting to note the ways, though, that the creatures are different. Because they obviously center around this horrifying monster that is uh, killing people. And the thing I think is so cool is is talking about the way that in Jaws, there was this huge innovation in how they shot the shark. And specifically, of course, they didn't shoot the shark Uh, It's a famous story now, but the shark model didn't work very well. And so in coming up with all these other ways of framing the horror of the movie, uh, one of the most successful was when Spielberg realized that he could shoot from the shark's perspective. So there's all these shots of the shark looking up at the people bobbing in the water Mm. and such a terrifying way of thinking about uh, the creature beneath you is looking it looking up at the humans that it's going to eat. And the really clever thing is when you realize that that shot would be impossible in Alien. That Alien is a film which is so committed to creating the... Or to manifesting the otherness of this monster that it wouldn't even make sense for you to see the perspective of the monster. Mm. Where are its eyes to start with? But more in a more philosophical sense, you cannot begin to fathom how it's responding or what it's looking for or what it's doing. Uh, we actually mentioned this, I think earlier in the show, but there's also this way that you don't know exactly why it's even killing them. Yeah. That you kind of assume has something to do with fuel or hunger or eating, but at some point you realize it's just leaving their dead bodies where it killed them. And, Again, it's just all of it is just combined to create this monster that you cannot fundamentally relate to. And, and that the perspective of the monster is so alien to you that you can't even begin to process it. You, you It wouldn't make sense to show you what the monster is seeing. Um, so, yeah, I just think it, it's, it's a brilliant design. And it's a design that reflects a philosophy within the film. Yeah. A, you know how deeply other the other can be how how much something could be outside of our ability to understand its perspective uh i just think it's really cool
1: yeah and i think i mean i think it's important to note that like one of the i mean i agree with everything you said but i think one of the pieces of language i would disagree is you said it would be impossible to do that shot and i actually think it would be totally possible i think a i think a lesser director would have thrown in a jaws moment to try to you know make a cheap thrill right and i actually think what i all i'm really having a a problem with this is like i just don't want to undercut the brilliance of scott in that decision because i do think that's an intentional creative decision right he understands deeply the philosophy that he is trying to lay out with the xenomorph and he refuses to bend on that right for a cheap thrill like he makes an active decision to be like you cannot see through this creature's eyes and I think that does add just, yeah. I had never thought of it before you said it, but I think that just adds an extra layer to any number of scenes we've already laid out about how deeply unpredictable or unknowable the xenomorph is. Um, yeah, it's just it's a powerful directing decision, I think.
0: And it's You're right, too. It's the kind of thing where I don't know if I knew about it until it was pointed out to me. And once you know it, it's so obvious. You watch the movie and you're like, oh, wow. You're, you never will see what it's like from that perspective. I think it's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the powerful, I mean, it's one of the powerful parts of this idea. And maybe we'll just close out on, on this in terms of mine. But, you know, so much of our engagement with the other, which we talk about um, ad nauseum on this podcast, right? But the idea that there is this other in our lives who we see as the enemy or we see as um, oppositional, as as being completely different than ourselves and so much of spirituality is the challenge for you to um, grow in your capacity to imagine what it would be like to be within, you know, their mind, their heart, their soul to to see through their eyes, right, to grow and to be a person who can actually see the world as they do and essentially to develop empathy. And I think it's so fascinating that, I mean, there's there's something so fascinating and so challenging that at the core of this movie, it's like there is an other in which that is not possible. Right. Because so much of my worldview is like it's always possible. You just need to mature and to develop and to become willing to. And there's just something so (laughs) dark about this movie that it's like, no, actually, you can encounter a creature that is completely impossible for you to empathize with and if you try you'll die right (laughs) it's just like uh oh yeah um and yeah i don't know it's such an interesting antithesis really to probably what we both believe but um boy does that create a dark undertone of this this movie so i don't don't know if you have anything you would like to respond to with that but it is interesting the implications of that in terms of the movie's world yeah i mean
0: yeah, absolutely. I, I I think it's kind of the advantage of a movie is that it can tell it it can show you something that is unreal, like there's a fantasy element to it. Yeah. So I think, you know, in a sense I, I could go into a thing where maybe it's actually bad because people think sometimes that they are fighting something like this when you're not. Like, you know, this doesn't exist and there's a reason this doesn't exist. Um, at least that we've discovered. Uh, you know in terms of like people approach you know human war and stuff in in the same way and that's where it gets kind of tricky Uh, but yeah I mean I guess in essence I just think it's I agree that it's just so uh, it's so right for entertainment entertainment and horror right that that because it is such a a unique thing so I I guess fundamentally I just agree yeah 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 have you ever had one of
1: those moments where you came across something that blew up your predictive mind Because it is really interesting. I think for me, it's almost always the other way around, right? I think my predictive models are always warning me of danger that this person has bad intentions because in the past I had an experience with someone who acted the same way or with that person and they hurt me, right? And then that kind of past experience becomes the filter through which I judge and criticize and respond negatively towards a person or a group of people or whatever else. And then More often than not, the predictive mind is actually getting blown up by them proving me wrong, right? By, like, being kinder than I thought or more human than I thought. Um, So it is interesting that in this one it's like, nope, the danger is way worse than you could ever imagine. But have you ever had one of those experiences where, like, you really felt like that predictive part of us just gets completely destroyed or turned upside down?
0: Yeah, I mean, the one that immediately comes to mind is is pretty negative, unfortunately, but... Uh, was it Obama? In it, it was Obama. No, no, no. It was the but but <laughs> it is the the recent political climate. Yeah. I think has been a pretty sobering wake up call in terms of uh, you know the things that can apparently be said and that you know seventy million people are just like oh yeah that's fine I still endorse this guy and 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 this perspective and even people that I otherwise would have that I know that I otherwise would have thought oh well this is a rational sane person who is probably fundamentally cares about people and then via their actions in, in, in voting in that way, it's like, Oh, apparently not. Uh, that's the perspective I have, which I guess maybe is is controversial apparently nowadays, but I, I think that that is the, the clearest example and is a true, um, it's a true disillusionment that I think we're all, a lot of people are going through right now of just, Oh, I thought it was taken for granted that if, Someone said this kind of thing about, uh, you know, minorities or about uh, certain countries or, or, you know, just about anything like, you know, pick is at this point is basically just pick your poison. I just kind of thought that it was taken for granted that most people would have an issue with that. And so learning that most people or a lot of people don't is, uh, yeah, is pretty disappointing and is, is just kind of a lesson in how insidious a lot of this stuff can be. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. That was the first thing that came to my mind.
1: Well, Johnny with the hot takes. Hot takes. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not going to touch the politics with a 10 foot pole. Um, that's fine. John and I are,
0: I, I, I'll be the brave one. Yeah. I'll, John I'll and I it.
1: are, uh, we'll just leave it at obviously largely in disagreement about most things Our agreement. Oh my gosh. Oh no. I was
0: like, Oh my God. I was like, Whoa, Johnny and I This was I, a weird way to. This is a weird way to (laughs) to tell me that, right?
1: Johnny and I are largely in agreement about most things. So, and, but I just want to make sure I I keep it towards, I mean, but it does apply to the spiritual and the political. So I guess I shouldn't say I want to keep it spiritual because I think they're related. But it is interesting because one of the things that I think is fascinating about spirituality, and maybe this is what we can close on, is there is the challenge of like, well, why is the predictive mind bad, right? And in so many places, it's not like it is good that like, hey, I got hit by a car once. I shouldn't do that again. So if I see a car coming, I get out of the way. Right. It's but there comes this moment where those experiences build up and become a story between like stimulus and response. Right. And basically, you can think you're in danger when you're not or vice versa. You can think you're not in danger when you are right and so much of what gets the characters in this film in trouble speaks to that, right? Because if they just respond to this alien in the present without assuming they know how it's going to act or behave or that they have any concept that allows them to put it in a box, they actually probably would behave differently in the film. If they approached it more with a sense of this thing is utterly dangerous and changing in every moment, and thus we're never going to do something that assumes it will behave in X way, right? I do think that would change the character response and and i think that's just a powerful part of spirituality is just like let the moment and whatever is in front of you be what it is not because that's a nice like pompous or intellectual or spiritual lovey-dovey thing to say because that actually lets you respond to the threat or the lack of threat as it actually is which is going to be your best chance of responding appropriately And I just think that's a fascinating part of this movie is that it's like, this is the example of when that goes haywire, just like it can be in the political world. An example of it goes haywire. If we assume that something isn't a threat and we don't take it seriously, um, whether that be the rise of fascism or small things that build up over time. Right. And we're just like, it's fine. It's fine. It's not a big deal. And then it is, or, or it can be more in our personal lives, right. Whether it's someone we care about and we're like, well, this person said this. And every time someone has said that to me, they've abandoned me. So, my wife must be leaving me. And then we start responding as if they already are doing that. And we make a mess of the relationship, right? So I just think there's something very powerful about that that need for presence when it comes to stimuli and response, both in terms of threats and the lack thereof.
0: I don't remember how old I was when I first considered the fact that I would probably not be the hero of the story. I think I was probably in college in a history class. That's where the idea resonates with me now. Because in history class, you learn that most people for most of history are not exceptional by definition. That means that most people don't win the battle. Most people don't stand up for what's right. And most people don't really survive until the end of the story. And it's one of the greatest illusions that your brain grants you this idea that you always will imagine yourself as the hero, as the survivor, the sane, rational, smart, empathetic, good person who makes it to the end. But most of us aren't, and we wouldn't. Whenever I rewatch Alien, my first reaction is usually incredulity at the stupidity of the crew of the news dramas. They are being sabotaged by Ash, the secret confederate. But the crewmates are constantly acting in a way that's advantageous to the invader. Dallas orders the doors opened and Crane be treated medically, despite the obvious objections raised by Ripley. Lambert is literally paralyzed with fear, which damns herself and Parker. And Parker himself is unable to kill her along with the alien. And when not actively aiding the alien, most of the crew find themselves unable to halt its rampage. Only Ripley, the sole voice of reason, guts, and logic throughout the film, earns the right to survive and to kill the nightmarish terror. And the thing that really kind of guts me is to realize how unlikely it is I would be Ripley. My disbelief at the crew's actions in Alien, after a bit of thought, usually softens into acknowledgement and understanding. Because I actually think that this is sort of the most realistic part of the movie, as people we don't find it easy to see through difficult situations nor do we find it easy to hold on to our principles when internal fear is pushing back against them in fact as annoying as it is to see unfold i think the most believable part of the whole movie is captain dallas's orders to open the doors he shouts at ripley we have to get kane to the infirmary or he may die her retort that such an action may and in fact does doom the entire crew doesn't even register. Holding a dying man, the principles which Dallas knows intellectually are right, vanish in smoke. This idea isn't about anything positive or negative as regards human nature. I think actually that our willingness to abandon orders within a given high-stress situation is sometimes a saving grace, but it is something that goes unacknowledged inside of most of our heads. We imagine ourselves as doing one thing in a situation but what we imagine need not have any relationship with reality. And in fact, I think it seldom does. And this whole thing matters because we are at times called to stand close to a principle in times of fear and dread. And the strength to do so will not be there if we've always assumed that the decision would be easy. In short, if we've always seen ourselves de facto as the hero. Going back to my college history class, this very idea of how we respond to the world around us gets at the most terrifying part of the rise of Nazism in Germany. For some reason, our common sort of shared narrative of the rise of the Nazi party is that every German person seemingly overnight turned evil or or perhaps they were always evil and something was activated in them. And while that's a comforting thought, The idea that some kind of devil disease spread from a man and corrupted an entire nation. I think it's a thought that lets us off the hook too easily. Again, we're stuck imagining ourselves as the heroes. We think, okay, well, they went along with this, but if I was there, I would be the one to stand up and to say, no, this is wrong, and to fight back against the thing that so clearly violates what I know is right but I would argue most of us wouldn't do that. Most of us would be Captain Dallas in a messy situation he's not prepared for, not being told explicitly what's right and wrong with no clear answer, leaving his principles and his rationality behind. Dallas's flaw was that he never imagined he could be anything but the hero. And if he never foresaw making a wrong decision, how could he ever be prepared to avoid it? So much of spirituality starts with life is suffering. And I think most people hear that and then sort of think, well, that's a bummer and then ignore it. Because why would you want to dwell on that? But what we miss is that starting there opens ourselves up, makes us better able to see our circumstances, our lives, even ourselves more clearly. Fear drives most of our irrational principle compromising behavior. It's why the first step of dictators is to create a buggy man that is the source of all fear. Once people are afraid, once they are told that this person or this group or this thing is responsible for every problem in their life and will continue to hurt them, then their principles get thrown out the door. No German in 1930 would say that it was good to kill children, but after years and years of being told that the Jewish people had betrayed them, had hurt them, and would do so again, those same Germans found that their principles could be abandoned really quite easily. And so the call of spirituality is to see yourself as not the hero, to know and accept that some part of your life will be an incurable suffering, and in so doing, to steel yourself against those who would deceive you with fear. As much as it pains me to say it, I, I wouldn't be Ellen Ripley of the Dramas. But I kind of think that if I acknowledge that, when the time comes to do the hard but right thing, maybe I will be better equipped to stick to the principles that matter to me. Because I've already let go of the idea of being the hero. And maybe that means I can resist the things that would cause me fear rather than be a slave to them. it's interesting you know it's interesting because we just had a long political discussion in between these uh monologues uh which actually ended up unintentionally talking about a lot of the same sort of things about this idea of how you know how people can be deceived by fear in the ways that that lets you you know compromise principles principles that everyone pretty much agrees on can go out the door surprisingly fast um, and, and and disturbingly fast, I guess you could say. Uh, So, so Mike, I guess the place where I would start this idea of imagining yourself as the hero and maybe coming to terms with not being that, is that something you relate to? Have you ever sort of fallen into that trap of, you know, a situation that you're like, I would, I know I would do the right thing in this situation. And then when that situation comes up, uh, you know, sometimes we're prone to not do what we imagined we could do yeah
1: yeah it's actually really interesting as a tangent um one of the things that it was really interesting growing up with spirituality in the evangelical fundamentalist kind of tradition was that you would always learn these stories about you know david and moses and like these heroic figures of the biblical text right and you would always be taught that you are them, right? Um, and then also you'd be taught that you are a piece of crap, and you would always be a piece of crap. So there's always like a weird contradiction there. But
0: yeah, I was about I was about but, to say I was like, well, you know, it, it kind of yeah, it, went it definitely both ways, did. but, yeah, but yeah. you definitely were
1: taught large largely that like you should identify yourself with whoever is the good guy of the story, right? And it's not to say that you shouldn't. Like, I think I've given plenty of sermons where use Moses or one of these characters as an example, or even in terms of aspiration to what we want to be, like talk about Jesus as an example and aspiring to grow to be like Christ um, and theologically believing that such things um, are not only attainable, but are the goals of our lives, right? Um, But it is interesting that if you start at the heroic point kind of like what you're saying if you start with the assumption um that you are the good guys in the story what i've come to learn through seminary and everything else is you're almost always going to miss what the bible is trying to teach you right you're going to end up being yeah, yeah america thinking that you're israel god's chosen people when really the biblical story would tell you that america is just another babylon right um that you're just another yeah. egypt that um the that in fact what the bible so deeply wants you to do is to find yourself in the villains as a way to remind yourself not to feed the cycles and the systems and the patterns that have so deeply and over and over again broken our world, right? Don't become the Pharaoh because that's more than not the easiest thing to become as a human being when fear is played into it, when pride is played into it, whatever else, right? So I do think it's, it's always fascinating from a theological perspective that in reading the Bible, you're like, oh no, the starting point is that you should be looking at your culture, yourself, your world, and not just assuming you're Jesus of Nazareth, right? (laughs) That you should be wondering, where where have I become, like I said, the Pharaoh or Babylon in the world? So that's just a tangent, but it's a fascinating one that I think is really important. But I think personally, you know, that shows up strongly in two ways. I mean, I think any number of times in my relationships, I have had those moments of awakening to realize that I am the villain of someone else's story, right? And that even though in the moment I did everything I thought I should be doing or that would help me or whatever, there was a a self-centeredness in me or an ego in me that had led me to miss the impact I was having on another person's life and I had caused harm or disaster or, or real wounds, right? And, and that's not to say I'm a terrible person, that's just part of being a human being. You just don't you have to deconstruct those things before you can kind of realize what you're actually doing in the world. So it's like really interesting cause you know, there are arguments where I died on Hills where I was just dead wrong, right? Dead wrong. I'm just like, Nope, this is the way it works. I'm right. You're wrong. And then in hindsight, you're like, ew, that was a bad take. Um, I actually was a piece of crap in that moment. Right. It always reminds me of the Mitchell and yep. Webb joke that we love where he's like, are we the baddies? Right. Um, <laughs>
0: Yeah, great,
1: great accent work right there. But but yeah, so I mean, that comes up a lot in my relationships. Um, And it's constantly acknowledging that not for the purpose of shame, not to be like, oh, my gosh, I'm such a bad person. I hurt this other person. I'm never going to be redeemable. But for the purpose of recognizing that in like you were saying, in naming the problem, I can actually potentially become the solution. I can actually potentially heal that part of myself or deconstruct and reconstruct that part of myself Um, and be something different, which is really all spirituality is about, about, right? It's, you don't have to be the way you are. It's, there's almost a simplicity to that, right? If you accept the way you are, you don't have to be it. And there's something powerful about that. Um, I think the other way, and I'll be brief and let you jump back in, But as I have seen myself over and over again, caught up at points in my life in that scapegoating you were talking about, which is just what it is. It's someone telling you, hey, if you could just get rid of blank, everything would be okay," And playing on my fear that things aren't okay, or my discontent or my anger. And I've seen that. I've definitely seen that play out in various people's groups, right? You grew up in the South, you're bound to have some racism in you that you have to name and deconstruct, and it's almost always grounded on those people are the problem. Um, I think I've seen that play out a lot politically, which is where it gets complicated, as we've kind of discussed, but I have definitely simplified and demonized uh, an oppositional group, just for the comfort of knowing that if I could get rid of them, our world would be a utopia, right? Um, And then I've, but I think the more nuanced one, is I've seen myself do that with my own, um, I, I, want, I don't know, brokenness, maybe. Maybe that's the way to say it. Some aspect of myself that I just say, oh no, if I just got rid of that, or if I just wasn't that way, then none of these bad things would have happened in my life, right? Or I wouldn't have made those mistakes. And in the same way, simplify uh, both my experiences of this world and the complexity of this world and the complexities of myself into something that is easy to scapegoat and thus in that roundabout way impossible for me to actually deal with impossible for me to accept and grow out of and and transform because i'm not seeing it as it actually is right so i don't know that was a long answer but yeah the answer is yes i connect deeply with what you said (laughs) i think that's just part of being a human being
0: yeah absolutely you know it it makes me think, going back a little bit to what you were talking about in, in the context of spirituality and, and how I, I think it, at best, it starts with this thing of, you know, people who aren't what they want to be. Uh, there's this quote that, that you and I greatly appreciate from Frank Herbert. Uh, within, the, within the Book of Doom, he talks a little bit about the religion of this sort of future universe he's created. And a quote from one of the figures says, uh, religion must always be a place for people who say to themselves, I am not the kind of person I want to be. It must never sink into an assemblage of the self-satisfied. And it gets right at that idea because it says you start with I'm not the hero. I start with, hey, I've looked at myself and there's things that I wish I did that I don't. And there's things that I don't do that I wish I did. And how, what do I do about that? And how do I reconcile that? And I, I think that that is kind of exactly what we're talking about. It's this way that we don't realize it, but our default is to say, you know, or, you know, I won't say everyone, but for me and for a lot of people I know, my default is to say, okay, well, I clearly am the hero. I'm clearly the protagonist, the one who gets this, the one who does the right thing. And there's nothing about me that I really need to change. And so that is why it's so important that spirituality, because spirituality without that becomes a, a grotesque yeah, thing, yeah. frankly. It becomes just this this group of people who believe that they are right and everyone else is wrong, and that leads you to do truly horrific things. Um, yeah, and it's... So, yeah, I think, I think, I think it, you're right. It's really Go interesting
1: ahead. because I think both poles of that create something grotesque, Right um because i grew up in a again fundamentalism which taught me that the biblical story starts and people don't care about this but whatever that it starts with what christian theology calls the fall right when sin enters the world and essentially if you read the bible from fundamentalist lens it's just like everything is wrong and you're bad and god needed to kill jesus so he could not kill you whatever i'm not going to oversimplify but i just did but it's interesting because, you know, that starts at there's a problem and here's a solution. Right. And that's obviously produces so much self-loathing. It produces so much uh, pain and suffering and misery in people. You know, it, it just starts in this place of shame and thus it's not very productive. Um, but on the other hand, you know, yeah. I've also kind of ran into people who teach that it's all good and there isn't a problem. Right. Which is kind of the hero part of it, where it's yeah. like, no, you're just the hero. You always have been, um, and there's nothing wrong with you, and that's fine. And, and
0: like, oh, well, and don't look at, yeah, and don't look that. at yeah. the
1: the havoc you've wreaked in your relational world because that's not your fault, and you're whatever. It's all it's those people. And what's interesting is I actually think the more nuanced thing, and what is fascinating about the Bible is the Bible starts with everything being good, like it starts with a declaration that we in our world. Is, are fundamentally good, right? There is goodness baked in inherently into existence, into reality, into life. And then something went wrong that did not destroy that, but blurred it. And then it's about the task of returning to that goodness. And there's something so inherently important about that, where it's not saying you're the villain or the hero. It's saying that you are good, and at times you play both hero and villain, and really what it's about is trying to just constantly return to that innate goodness so that you you know so that you aren't living on the polar extremes and causing harm or being blind or being unconscious right i don't know that's just an important thing to be where it's like it's the grayness of that where it's you know you are inherently good and you make mistakes right and it's the journey to becoming better
0: Well, Mike, thank you so much for the conversation. I, you know, I, we've done this now pretty ad nauseum, uh, but this is a pretty fascinating you, movie and, and the more I think about it, there's so much, you more are my alien,
1: it. John, you're my Xenomorph.
0: Okay. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You know what? I'm, I'm taking there it you positively. Go. Thanks, Do whatever buddy. you want. Uh, you're my Dallas. <laughs> you die in an event by being hugged. Uh, last thing the last thing we have left, I don't think I would take anything as negatively as as if someone told me, yeah, "You're well, my Dallas." I think that's pretty We did pretty joke. Rock. The
1: Xenomorph does hug Dallas. So, thanks, Bud.
0: It does. That's true. So, yeah, look at that. I just want you to, you know, to to feel the love. Uh, so the last thing we have left is just a final question that we've each prepared uh, for the other person. Before we do that, though, uh, next time we are going to be talking about the movie Her. I can't wait. Uh, I should have looked up the year. What, what year is this come don't out? Don't
1: throw that at me because 2000... you didn't do your homework.
0: 2013. Wait. Wait. Her is a 2013 American science fiction romantic comedy film written, directed, and produced by Spike Jonze. is a classic starring Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Scarlett Johansson as an AI assistant. Uh, I was, I'm not sure how widely viewed it is. I, I never got a read on that. I know a lot of people I know, uh, really, really love that movie, but if you haven't seen it, definitely watch that because I think it should be a great conversation. Uh, final question. Uh, you know what? We've recorded this before once. Uh, and I know already know that we both have the same question unless you made a separate one. no, but I want to have this conversation again. Okay. <laughs> I do too. So we both, so we'll just go ahead and spoil that. We both have the same question for each other. I wrote, Mike, would you have gone back for the cat? And then I, I supplemented it with, would you have gone back for Hank? Because Hank is Mike's, uh, adorable, uh, kind of ditzy, if we're honest, huge, uh, husky mix, I guess is what he is technically. Um, I don't know. Do you think I... First of all, do you think my description of Hank did him uh, justice? He has a lazy eye and a giant forehead. Old. Oh, we could also throw yeah, a old in there now. Like, I don't think that used to be He's true, kind of but. a
1: butter where he's a gorgeous dog from far away. But you get up close and he's got like... Like I said, he has like a lazy eye and a cliff for a forehead. And he kind of drools a lot. So
0: it's like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. So... <laughs> He's, he's got a lot going for him. This is that. now the Hank podcast. Uh, so would you have gone back? So, so you're you're. Yeah, we, I'm, I'm came with that. We could do that. So you are Rip Ripley. You're running around the, the Nostromus. You're in the escape ship. You suddenly realize the stupid dog. Hank is back there with his dumb face. You're going to go back or you going to or is this. Well, it? obviously,
1: you're going to answer about your cat, too, because that was my question as well. Um, yeah. So <laughs> honest answer. So like yeah. <laughs> your, your monologue I think
0: I know the answer Your monologue answer. <laughs> had a
1: deeply uh, Profound impact on me Cause you know the first response right. Is to be like of course I'd save Hank Like Hank was there for me at rock bottom yeah. I got that dog when I had You're nothing like, And he put up with me And we're you know we do everything together Um
0: Is that a relationship Yeah that and a I'd like yeah.
1: kick open that airlock Two guns in hand and and just go to town Right Um but yeah. I kind of wonder if that's just me trying to be the hero and like the honest yeah. answer.
0: Yeah, I kind of wonder The honest that answer too.
1: is kind of like, I wonder how quickly I would start to be like, well, Hank's kind of old, you know, and he's had a pretty good <laughs> life and blowing up in a spaceship isn't the worst way to go. He probably doesn't have many years left.
0: It's honestly a pretty iconic yeah. ending, like can hank really expect that much right? better from from you know what, what's the alternative i'm gonna go get him and he in a couple of years from now he's gonna die in a vet yeah, hospital screw exactly. that exactly let's, let's go so i, I kind of
1: wonder how quickly those narratives would start playing um <laughs> the
0: rationalization because it's
1: like i'm trying to imagine it this way it's like me and my wife ricky and you and a couple of our best friends are on a spaceship and then i watch you all get murdered one by one (laughs) and then i'm the only (laughs) one to get away and i'm like you know what i need to go rescue hank i'm just not sure that's me in this film that's all i'm trying to say
0: (laughs) yeah yeah you again you're you're right it is kind of the monologue you're you're you've correctly analyze your. yeah but i don't want to
1: face myself uh, that deeply so yes i would say hank that's my final answer
0: okay to be honest that's kind of where i am uh my answer was something to the degree of uh really really probably not i probably say a few kind words <laughs> a I, salute. I, I, for a second i,
1: I do a little salute. i uh
0: i sort of vaguely think about the fact that cats are like amazingly gifted survivors. So I sort of like <laughs> vaguely think I don't put too much She's thought into it. it because obviously the answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in my head, I'm like, you know, maybe I'll run into her again. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. Uh, and, and of course for my own, for the sake of my own psyche today, I say, Oh yeah. Well, obviously I go back guns blazing and and save her. Uh, but yeah realistically i don't it is you know and we didn't really get into this last time we talked about it it is wild wild that she actually does go back for the cat what a hero it's the one like kind of dumb decision she makes and i guess it i guess it works like nothing you know she survives so who cares uh but it is kind of insane i'm not that's why i think we both had that question because it was like I don't know. I wouldn't have done that for my dog. And doesn't the cat yeah.
1: die in the crash to start aliens? Oh, it no. lives? No, the, oh.
0: the cat lives. Yeah, yeah, The cat's alive. Uh she she sees the cat in the hospital bed, uh, and then it doesn't go with her. That's you know, right. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. The the cat sort of just lives out in uh on Earth, presumably. I mean, wouldn't it have just lives. been better it for be- it
1: to get blown up in space dust? I mean, come on. It's a cool way to go
0: to be fair, the cat always hated the alien. So I think in that sense, it sort of earned its, its oh, survival. Okay. Fair enough. Like the fact that it, it yeah, the fact that it, it growled at it and, and, got the one dude killed. Man, by this
1: movie's logic, shouldn't Ripley have died just because of that decision?
0: What if the movie ended that way? Yeah. That's what, so <laughs> that's, that's what I think is very fascinating about it, is that it's like, yeah, you're totally right by the movie's logic. It's like, no, that's the one time that she concedes to like, sort of you know monkey brain human like oh well, gotta get the cat i should you know gotta get the cat and it's like no but but i mean yeah, she gets really scott likes cats thought. okay well i think that's it uh mike thank you for talking about alien combined now we've talked about this movie uh probably you know on re- on record even if the record didn't work like eight or nine hours and just in person like 50 hours yeah. probably yeah uh, so, I'm happy to never talk about it again yeah, if you movie. are. Yeah, uh, at least until so we next week. So, next week we're
1: doing Aliens. Uh, oh, aliens. Wait, I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> yeah, gee, God, God almighty. Uh, cool. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, as always, I'm Jonathan Devine, uh, joined by Mike Overstreet. And uh, we'll see you guys next time.